0: In this episode of Boss Files,
1: diversity, I think, has become a real business imperative at the very top with CEOs who are facing massive disruption.
0: Accenture's North America CEO, Julie Sweet, why she feels it's her job to focus on diversity and inclusion well beyond the bottom line. Her goal at the company gender parity by 2025.
1: I'm very optimistic, and I'll tell you why. You know, I'm with CEOs all the time. I'm in the C-suite. There is something different today than even two or three years ago. There is a genuine focus that's not about checking the box. This is what we expect. The recruits want to do it. But I believe it's really tied to the need for companies to be more innovative.
0: Plus, growing up with just a single pair of shoes... Her parents were far from rich, and she says her younger self was driven by the desire to be successful. Julie, thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Well, Thanks for having me. I've read a lot about you now. I'm excited to hear it from you, uh, your sort of remarkable rise and story and the different path you took and the risks that you took, because I think all of us, would benefit maybe from taking more risks. I know I certainly would. So let's talk about those moments because you've said you think about your life in moments. And one of the most defining, if not the most defining, at least for your career, happened when you were 17 years old. Can you take me back?
1: Yes. So I was 17. I grew up in Southern California. Um, My dad painted cars for a living, and my mom actually graduated from college, my freshman year in college. And so uh, I was a senior in high school, and I had won a scholarship from the Irvine Company. And it was great because it was a real affirmation, first of all, um, of—I remember when I interviewed with 13 white men for that scholarship <laughs> and uh, it was interesting because they asked me during the interview i still remember this i can just see them all lined up you imagine a like, young sure. woman 13 white men and they said We understand you got into Stanford, but you're going to Claremont McKenna. Why would you do that? Which is a
0: phenomenal school, by the
1: way. Yes, although at the time, Claremont's was not as well-known as it is today. And I said, well, gentlemen, it's because I don't have the money to go to Stanford, you know. And uh, so I'd won this scholarship, and that night uh, I went to it, and I remember my parents were very nervous. It was a very fancy restaurant, and my dad and mom, like, you know, we did not have, like, multiple forks at our sure. table. And my dad just, like, watch what everybody else does, right? And we go, and I sit next to uh, a gentleman, Howard Margulius, and uh, he starts talking to me, like the normal thing, like, you know, what are you going to study in college? Where are you going? And it turned out he was actually on the board of trustees of Claremont McKenna, where mm-hmm. I was about to go. And, uh, and, and I said, well, I want to study international relations. And he said, well, what language? And I said, well, I studied French. Um, but I don't really like it. And so he literally said words that changed my life. Mm-hmm. He said, How about Chinese? Wow. Uh, and think about it. this was in nineteen eighty five. Right. and at the time, If an American studied a foreign language, it was usually European. If Mm -hmm. they studied Asian, it was Japanese. It was the time of Japan. And Chinese wasn't, you know, sort of on everyone's radar screen, which is hard to think about now. And we talked about it. I knew a lot about international relations because I'd done speech and debate. And I talked about, you know, followed current events. And he told me all about, you know, the opportunities there. And I went home that night to my parents, who didn't have a passport. Right. And I said, I am going to study Chinese. (laughs) And they were like okay, whatever you want, honey. And, and this uh, was before you even said, I want to go there. Yes. I want to live there. Right. Well, actually I told them I'm going to study Chinese and then I'm going to spend a year abroad. Okay. And they were like, okay, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but it really for me was transformative because ultimately I, I lived abroad for a year. I lived in Taiwan and Beijing and, You know, when I was in Taiwan, there was still martial law. I would go to restaurants. People would surround my table to watch me eat. Because here you are. People can't see you on the podcast. But here you are, this very
0: blonde, blue-eyed,
1: Western woman. Absolutely. And, you know, I I had girls that pull my eyelashes. Are they real? You know? But probably more importantly is I I had to make my way. So in Taiwan, there was a school I studied at, but there was no formal program. I didn't have a lot of money. I called my parents every two weeks, uh, you know, from the the, the local phone booth. And then I went to Beijing. And this was a time when you walked into a store and there were empty shelves and people standing in front of them because it was really height of communism where there weren't things. And you'd go to a restaurant and they'd have, you know, everything on the menu, but they'd actually only have pork and cabbage, you know, and... So really, learning to succeed in that environment and the confidence, um, but also learning what it's like to be different, right? And I think sure. today to be the
0: minority, exactly that you, as a woman, are in corporate environments in 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 America now. But you know, as a as a white successful woman. You didn't have that lens before, perhaps. You got it there.
1: Absolutely. And, And even things like, you know, not being the most articulate, right, because I was learning a language. And so when I, you know, we at Accenture, we have a lot of people who come from all over the world. And, you know, I have a sensitivity to what is it like to have English as your second language because I you know, I I did that. I, I really think it's taught, it helped teach me the power of empathy. You know, we don't always talk about that as a leadership quality. And I think it is a really important one is, you know, having empathy, understanding the experiences of how someone is going to experience what you have to say. And I really track that back to the experience of being in a place where it was very different, where I was the minority. And you know, translating that into understanding people around me and how they may be experiencing being a minority. Did that year
0: abroad in China being the minority give you your confidence? I would
1: say that it was part of a journey on confidence. So I go back to, you know, one of the things I'm really like to support are things like the Irvine Company scholarship, because for me, that was my first sort of external affirmation and someone taking an interest. So I try to do a lot of mentoring because mm-hmm. I know that someone taking an interest gave me confidence. Mm-hmm. And then taking that risk and succeeding has really given me the confidence to take other risks. Mm-hmm. Because I, I'll i sometimes, you know, early on in my career, I'm like, look, if I can move to Beijing and Taiwan, mm-hmm. I can try this. Sure. Right. And, uh, and so I do think of that as a very formative experience, even now, mm-hmm. like sort of think about my jump to becoming CEO, right? right. From the general counsel job right. at Accenture, you know, that's a risk, right? That you, that's very public. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think about even my willingness to take that risk is kind of goes back to those early experiences.
0: Well, and even your, your willingness to leave the law. I mean, here you were, early 40s, young kids at home, wildly successful in, in the field of law as a partner at one of the most renowned law firms in the world, you get a, a cold call, as I understand it, right, from a, a headhunter. They essentially wants to talk to you. You're thinking, why? You take the call and ultimately you, you make the jump.
1: Why? Again, it's that moment, you know like I say I do talk about moments is I was I was uh, very happy where I was. I had two young children. and I think some of the background was my father had just died that summer. And like when I look back, sort of hindsight, right, yeah. I realize that he died very young at 68. and I think it made me think a lot about. You know, life and and what do I want to do with my life and where it I'm going. That. I lost you know? my dad at 49. Oh, it does it's that. It's just it really does. And um, so I think I was in a state of mind where um, I was thinking about like I can look at my future and I could see my future at Krevath. I was very successful already. I'd been a partner for 10 years. And you know, is that what I was? That all I could be? And my father and my mother have always really. Um, inspired me to do more, to to never be sort of limited by my circumstances. And so I kind of had that, and, and having my father die, who was so influential, I think kind of had put me in a place where I was very open. When I when I got the call, I wasn't looking for a job, but what really grabbed me was I, I met the then-CEO, Bill Green, and um, it was funny because the first part of the interview, he said something like... Um, you know, the law's not rocket science, and I thought that's kind of an interesting way to recruit the new Thanks. general. I'm been and, like, working pretty hard. Exactly, <laughs> thank you. Exactly. So I just give him a bad time about that. But he said something that was really important to me and was I would you know, kind of the moment where I said, I want to do this," is he said, "I'm not looking for a lawyer. I'm looking for a business leader with legal experience. And uh, it's funny, I've never asked him whether he thought about that statement because for me, that was the turning point of mm. saying, this is something different. This is a new challenge. And when I came to Accenture from day one, I thought of myself as, you know, my job is to be a business leader. And the approach that you take when you do that mm-hmm. is different. And uh, and so I it was about taking a risk to say, wait, can I be a business leader, right, yeah. can I do yeah. that, and, uh, and I, I was so excited about the opportunity, and um, so, and I've never regretted, it. It's an, I feel very privileged, I have an amazing, amazing company, an amazing job. Let's talk a little bit about your dad, um, because for
0: all children, fathers are important, for young girls, and young women, they're so important. I mean, there are so many days that I look back now on my dad and smile. I don't, it doesn't bring tears all the time, but I do wish that I could ask his advice in the hardest moments. He said to you, Julie, after you lost a debate in high school, you need to be better than everyone else.
1: Yes, he did. It was uh, a very important moment because my dad was, you know, a huge supporter and fan and, um, we, uh, we did a lot together. My, my mom went to all my debate tournaments, which was the hardest job. And then my dad said, "I'll take you to these speech, you know, the speeches because there's they're not all day." And so we used to go to these different speeches that I was trying to raise money for college, actually. And so the different, um, uh, like the Lions Club, and that would yeah. have these speeches. And so I went to this particular one. It was the Lions Club, and I was it was me and another young woman, and I lost. And she was the daughter of someone in the club, and you know, my dad wasn't part of the club, and I was kind of complaining, and I didn't think she was that good, and she was. Too too girly. And, and that's what my father said, you know, like you need to be better than everyone else. And he followed it with, and you weren't. Wow. Right? So, you know, did he think I was better than her? Yes. But he was like, you have to be so, so much, much better, better, but it doesn't matter, right? That you're the daughter of someone that they have to give it to mm-hmm. you. And because welcome to life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because It drove me a lot then to sort of recognize that. And also what he was also saying was don't whine, Mm. right? Like don't let the fact that your dad's not a member of the Lions Club, that you didn't come from this, be an excuse for not achieving something, right? And that's important because, look, we we all have – we all have things that limit us, right? And there are a lot of people who have a lot more limiting things than I ever experienced, right? So I had two great parents who were married to each other who supported my education. I mean, think of you know, all the work we now do in the community where sure. people don't have that. And so you know, it, was, it was an important life lesson um, in terms of just also, <laughs> okay, let me tell you a quick story about what he said to me when I started work. Okay. So I started at Cravath and I'd been there two months and I'd done three all-nighters and uh, and and by the way Kravath is an amazing place and experience and so I'm calling my father up and I was that's whining a little bit and he says to me well um, do you have heat in the winter and air conditioning in the summer yeah. I said yes uh, when you work late do they give you a car home to keep you safe yeah do you make enough money to, you know, have an apartment and eat food? He said, yes. He's like, so tell me what the problem is. (laughs) (laughs) Good for your dad. And I never complained again. Good for your dad. And it wasn't that he didn't recognize how hard I worked, but it was just, it was about a mindset and about not feeling entitled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad worked outside for most of his life, right? My mom Raised three kids, worked part time, and got a college education. Compare that to what I was able to do. And, uh, you know, it's just a different perspective. An important perspective.
0: You didn't grow up with a lot of money at all. I mean, you talk about having one pair of shoes at a time. That's it as a kid until you outgrew them. You couldn't have more. But what your parents told you is we don't
1: have money, but we have time. The greatest gift. That's right. And they, um, and they use that in the context of serving others. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but I was incredibly blessed with a very happy home. And I never felt like I was missing something. And they made us feel that way because they spent so much time with us as a family. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my parents didn't spend money on themselves, but th- they, they spent time with us. And that was a real privilege but they also taught me about service because they volunteered all the time. They couldn't write a check, but they could give their time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's you know, something that I've tried to model my life after their role, and I started my first volunteer job my freshman year in college, and I did it consciously, probably to make them proud mm-hmm. and to say to myself, this is how I want to live. And now with my daughters, we're exposing them like so we volunteer at a local homeless shelter where they can help plan parties for mm-hmm. the kids and learn, you know, what it's like to be a kid just like them mm-hmm. but not have a home. Well, especially given I mean you've been wildly successful. So they're growing up
0: in a home with with much more materially, right, than than
1: you grew up with and you're showing them these are kids just like you right that's right and I also want to show them that service still requ- even if you have the ability to write a check and they know we give money because we've donated the sure. playground and that that it's important that we ourselves time. are showing up and giving that time
0: your mom pretty remarkable woman from everything that I've read so raises three, three children right yes working Graduates from college the same year that you were a freshman in college.
1: That's right. That must have been surreal in a
0: sense, and also made you so incredibly proud of her.
1: Yes, I mean she's she's really is an amazing woman and was such a role model for me as a woman, mm. right? Because she was going to school at a time when it was, you know, first of all, women were in the in the workforce as much in sure. senior levels and management. And the way, there's uh, still
0: not enough. but yes. we're getting there. That's right. <laughs> Twenty seventeen. We're yeah. getting there.
1: And I feel really, I feel really fortunate. She now lives near me, which is a wonderful um, oh, gift uh, to me and to my children.
0: True that you started your middle school's first women's uh, touch football team, and I ask this because you know yes. um, business is rough and tumble sport. And I suppose that was good training for you. But what it would also show is that at a very young age, you were raising your hand in a very conscious and also subconscious way and saying, equality now.
1: Absolutely. And um, although, I, I, and I still remember the principal then who was being very careful, but he, he felt like I was trying to make a statement, and I was, right? <laughs> um, yeah. the, the disappointing part of that story, though, was we had a hard time recruiting enough girls until... The teacher who um, was a wonderful teacher, and she was trying to really promote this sense of activism in me. But uh, she she had recruited her sons from high school to be our coaches there and until you go. That until I it. like shared <laughs> that they were handsome and high school boys because I was determined to not fail. And if I had gone back to the principal and not been able yeah. to actually get enough girls to do it, it would have been a so failure. So I succeeded. And critically, I adapted, right? So I recognized, okay, so maybe not everyone's where I am at, but if I can use the high school boys to get, the, you know, to get them there, then let's adapt. More from
0: my interview with Accenture's North America CEO, Julie Sweet, after the break. So let's fast forward to today. You're a mother, two daughters, is yes. that right? How would you assess the state of equality for women in America today?
1: I think we're so much better than when I started my career, um, but we still have a long way to go. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, right, we don't have enough people right. in um, in senior ranks. But I, I, I'm very optimistic, and I'll tell you why. I, you know, I'm with CEOs all the time. I'm in the C-suite. There is something different today than even two or three years ago. Really? And... And I'll tell you what I think it is. Um, There is a genuine focus that's not about checking the box, this is what we expect, the recruits want to do it, but I believe it's really tied to the need for companies to be more innovative. There's been so much disruption, and companies are having to come up with entirely new business models, and there's lots of examples of that. And when I'm talking to my peers, Mm -hmm. what they recognize is They can't do it with the same leaders and they need different thoughts, different, you know, different ideas. And so diversity, I think, has become a real business imperative Mm -hmm. at the very top with CEOs who are facing massive disruption. And that, I think, is why we're at an inflection point. I mean, you may have seen that we're one of the founding members of the CEO Action Initiative on Diversity. There's now 300 CEOs who have signed that. I'm not sure we could have gotten there even a few years ago. So it's
0: encouraging to hear. We're not there yet by a long shot, but you see... This is a tipping point moment. On on diversity, let's dive into that because here you are, a rarity as a female CEO just just to even be in the seat you're in. But you led Accenture releasing being the you know, according to Fortune, the the first of the big consulting firms and professional services firm to release a detailed breakdown of your diversity statistics. So as far as I've seen them right now, women account for about 36% of your your US workforce. Uh, African-Americans, about 7.5%. Hispanic employees, about 7.3%. And then in terms of executives, women are about 31%. That's right. So I know you want to get those numbers up. What is success for you on that front?
1: Well, if you take gender, we've actually just announced globally that we want to get to parity 50-50 by 2025. Okay. And so that will be you know, success, how we define success from a gender perspective. I'm very focused uh, in the U.S., right, because every country is different, Mm -hmm. um, around uh, also making progress with respect to African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, and Asian-Americans, and having... And by by success, I mean it's not just a total percentage, but continuing to have more leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I don't have a number yet for you, but what I start with is saying... You know, we need to at least be, be. you know, if you look at gender, we're close in terms of overall percentage and number of executives. And so we need to, you know, aspire to get the same um, with respect to our ethnic minorities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, it is about, first and foremost, the need to be an innovative company. And diversity is critical. Uh, it's also, though, about what kind of company you want to be, mm-hmm. right? And... Our, people who come to Accenture, we're 75% millennial globally, we're about 50% in the US. You know, the millennials want to be at a company that values diversity. It is a more fun place to be, it is a more interesting place to be. When we look at why people come to us, one of the top three reasons is we're very collaborative. And you know, our, the people who come to Accenture want to be part of collaborative teams that are interesting and diverse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we think it's actually a real differentiator as we try to get people to come join us. It
0: seems to have become a very personal mission for you because you, you were quoted again in Fortune saying, you think, Julie, you will have failed if you don't build the most diverse workforce out there. I mean, to you, that's unacceptable.
1: And it's, it's failure in your mind. It is. And I, I I chose those words carefully because, um, you know, one of our one of one of my marketing people said, "Why don't you say we won't succeed?" And well, I you said, "You love it as CEO, and you know, they craft they craft your language." For well, you. I have an amazing <laughs> marketing team, and they were asking me a good question, right? Because it, it the, the it's different to say I won't have succeeded as to failure, right? And I said, you know, it made me think about it. No, wow. I want to be clear; it's about failure. Okay, um, and you know, I. You know, we talk about moments. I can tell you the exact moment when I recognized that as a leader, I needed and wanted to be someone who was going to make a difference. Mm. And um, it happened when I was a uh, right before I made partner at Cravath. And this was this is really dating. So I'm about to turn fifty. This was in 1999, and we had our first unconscious bias training. And so that's very common now, but in 1999 it, it wasn't, wasn't. It wasn't then. And I went to um, the training you know, very few women. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew I was literally about to be elected partner. It was like two weeks away. Mm -hmm. And the facilitator went through all the different, um, you know, scenarios and that and then turned to me and said, you know, Julie, you're a senior woman at Cravath. Like, have you ever experienced this? And I didn't go to that training thinking anything particular other than, oh, it's good that we're having it. You know, this will be interesting. It certainly wasn't to make a point. I wasn't thinking of myself as, oh, boy, you know, we have it. And I went to speak, and I started sobbing. In front of all these people. In front of all these people. I could not get it under control. I had to leave the room. Wow. And I went back to my office, and I shut the door. And a little while later, um, the first woman corporate partner, this incredible woman, Susan Webster, is a dear friend of mine, knocks on the door, and she's like, They didn't know what to do. They sent me in, you know. (laughs) And, of course, by this time, it's, like, spread throughout the firm, like, what happened. And and it was so, you know, she understood. It wasn't that there was some big scandal. It wasn't that there was some, you know, something – it was just this recognition, particularly at that time, right? I worked in Asia, I had different and and it was it was not about Kravath, it was about the environment in general and business. It was the number of times I was the only woman in the room. right? It was the phone call in Asia with a client in front of 20 people said, you were about to hear the sweet tinkling tones of Julie Spellman, that, that was my maiden name, right? It was like all of <sighs> these different things. And, Just you know, soul
0: crushing when you, when you pile them on top of one another.
1: Exactly. And like day in and day out, you know, you know, I was determined to be successful. I was at a law firm that was incredibly supportive. Yeah, Almost all my mentors were men because there weren't that many women. Um, I mean, it was a great place to be, but it sort of came to me. And that's when I said, I'm about to become a partner. And it is my job as a leader to change that. Right. And I've I won't stop right until I'm able to do it. And actually coming to Accenture, one of the reasons I wanted to come here was that when I interviewed, the company was so clearly really committed. And I was about to as a general counsel, I was going to have, you know, 400 person law firm basically underneath me where I could really have influence in this great company that believed it. And mm-hmm. so now as the CEO, you know, I have even more of an ability to drive change. And it is hard, yeah. right? But um but it's a great privilege to have the opportunity.
0: In all candor, does it still sometimes happen to you today? Maybe the language isn't the sweet tinkling <laughs> sounds of Julie on a, you know, on a conference call, but does it, you know, I, I recently sat down with Susan Wojcicki, who's the CEO of yes. YouTube. So she's dealing with the whole tech Silicon Valley issues now, as right? With, 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 sexism, et cetera. And she talked about how, you know, oftentimes men interrupt her, even as a CEO. And she finally just started saying, stop interrupting me. I mean, are there things that still happen to you, uh, as a
1: female CEO? You know, it's funny. i I've, I've, I've thought about that because it really does not happen at Accenture. But, you know, at Accenture, meetings, it, it is clients. not. You know, I haven't, but in my experience in this role, mm-hmm. I haven't had that, right? Now, what does happen is you get a lot of opportunities because you're the woman's CEO. Of course. And I always say to young women who sometimes you don't like it, I said, look, there's going to be enough things in your life where being a woman is not helping you, whether you know it or not. So when they give you an opportunity because you're a woman... It take it, right? Because sometimes, go. like, the younger generation don't like that, and I'm like, no. And I would say, I can honestly say that I can't think of right now, like, with clients and that, and I always attribute it to, because I am CEO, it is a different sure. environment. Sure. Do I know that it absolutely happens? Uh-huh. You know, f- for our, you know, women who are not the CEO? Absolutely. Right. You know, and I'm not surprised you know, that women have these stories right and I may have one next week right you know what I mean like it's just so far I can honestly say I can't think of an example to reach this goal
0: on diversity um you can't hold everyone accountable as good of a CEO as you may be you don't have the time you do need to sleep every now and then it's your direct managers that you need to rely on to uh, hold their teams accountable. Are there directives? Are there hiring directives on meeting quotas? I mean, how are you instructing your managers to achieve
1: this? Well, you know, it's good because there's always a debate about how, how do you do it. And I sure. think, um, I think of really three things. So first of all, We do set hiring goals, and so we set it publicly um, around women, where we said by 2017 we wanted to hire 40% women globally. We met Mm -hmm. that a year early. We had set them before that to make sure that we had all the processes and the support, because one of the things is you can't set goals and then not give people tools, right? And you can't, and you need to invest in that. And, you know, we had to change how we recruited and so on to make sure. So we do set goals. Last year for the first time, we set goals in terms of hiring around African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, veterans, because we've we've announced that we want to hire 5,000 veterans by 2020. So we do set goals for hiring. Then you know, that now we're starting to set goals for percentages, of, so, because you want teams. it of, te- of not of teams, but overall, because you have to hire, but if you think about the pillars of diversity, there's mm-hmm. hiring, then there's retention, promotion, mm-hmm. and development, right? So we think about it in those four places, and so we use metrics where in each of those four pillars mm-hmm. it will help drive behavior. So
0: your managers know we have to hit these goals? Yes. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, I think, for some folks, but important because there are those that don't agree with this, right? There are those that will argue this should always be merit-based. Uh, this is discriminating against men or, you know, or or white individuals. What do you what do you say to those people?
1: Well, I think it's a couple things. So first of all, the setting of goals is only one piece of it because part of what you say to those people is is really the other two things that you need to do. So. The second is transparency. So one of the reasons we shared our numbers, not, they weren't because they were great, right? They were in order to have a transparent conversation. Mm-hmm. Because if you're talking to someone who's like, why do we do this? And yet and you can't say, well, let me talk to you about the numbers that we have. And do you really think that there are no eligible candidates that would result in these numbers, right? And what we found was if, you know, if you're asking people to support doing something, mm-hmm. but then you're not giving them the honest tools. Like That doesn't create trust, mm-hmm. right? And so transparency for us creates trust both for those people who are we are recruiting to say we're a company that believes in this and we're going to be honest about where we are and where we want to go, yeah. but also in conversations with people who are trying to understand the why of mm-hmm. what we're doing. So transparency is really important. But then also, and I think this is an area where we're really focusing on is you need to actually have inclusion be, you know, when you say inclusion, inclusive and diverse, it includes white men, right? So we did this incredible video called Inclusion Starts With I that has all of these different individuals, including white men, and it talks about the person, it, it should basically shows the individual with a sign about which part of the Diversity, the, the debate is bothersome for them. So it has a white man with a sign that says, You know, it bothers me when my promotion is not as celebrated, you know, as someone else's, right? And what the video was trying to do was to educate all of our people, and it goes back to the conversation around empathy, to yeah. understand the how feelings. a conversation around diversity feels for all parties for all parties the Obama
0: administration had put forward and 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 implemented what was going to take effect next year which is that all companies, over 50 people, uh, would have to report to the government. As we see in, in the UK, there are diversity data on pay for, for women versus men in the same jobs. That has been reversed by the Trump administration. Ivanka Trump, who has talked a lot about being an advocate for women, said that she does not believe it would be effective, that the intention was good. What do you make of that? As someone who has pushed so hard for transparency, are you disappointed in that? Well, actually, in
1: this case, You know, I think the transparency, that tool, is not a very helpful one because it is very hard when, you know, we, we do the reporting for this as well. And it is so difficult using the different ways they do roles and that to be able to actually have meaningful data. And so... Although I believe in transparency, I don't think that particular proposal was was the right answer. I think a lot of work needed to get done in order for it to actually have mm-hmm. actionable information. So I'm not disappointed based on the rationale given, because even as we were looking at it and we're a company that is transparent. You and, were going to need to do it. Right. And it's and I'm not sure that it would have been the right the right information. Now, we're very focused on pay equality, and we have an extensive um, system. We look at it every year. Mm -hmm. We have someone from the outside, uh, you know, review it for us. And we think that being transparent around, you know, do you have processes and do you have pay equality is really important. So you're saying Um, companies should do it, but the federal
0: government shouldn't mandate it in the way it was going to?
1: That particular proposal I don't think was the right answer. Okay. But I think the idea of transparency is really important. And whether that whether the answer is government regulation mm-hmm. or actually what's really been working is also companies, you know, kind of being having the pressure on, you know, from recruits and from the news media of where are you and what are you
0: doing? I mean, Mark Benioff at Salesforce a few years ago came out and said, we're not equal uh, on some of these fronts in terms of pay for women in some jobs and and we're going to fix it. And they spent, you know, a few million bucks going through and fixing it. I mean, I think more and more leaders are being candid about that. As a parent of, of two kids, parental leave has changed dramatically in the past few years. You have led the charge on that, um, uh, on changing that. The, the parental leave policy for new mothers, I believe 16 weeks now. Yes. For fathers, you also have eight weeks. Yes. Why was that important to you? Not just because you know what it's like to raise a baby, but from a business standpoint.
1: It's very much about making our company attractive to all the kinds of talent that we want to get. And for people, you know, for mothers and fathers, Mm -hmm. people who want to be mothers and fathers, they want to go to, they have choices, right? And they want to go to a company that is going to recognize you know, that that's important to them. You know? Are people actually not taking jobs or going to Silicon Valley for benefits like this? I think that it is becoming, particularly for young women, um, I, I, I can't say that I've heard it from our young male recruits, but I, you know, I do find very interesting that young women coming out of college, we will get questions and about, you know, sort of looking ahead, you know, c- you know, can I do this job? And uh, so we do think it's, it is, um, competitive for particularly young women coming out of college. Or attaining and and retaining. And retaining. Talent. But also it's the retention piece, right, is that, you know, I had some, when we announced it, I had a lot of, you know, male managers writing in to me saying, thank you so much. I've got this great woman who's about to go on maternity leave and I've been so worried about keeping her and this is going to help a lot. Uh, And, you know, I think the way we look at benefits is... We want people to be successful at work and at home, mm-hmm. and so this is one aspect of that—to be successful at home, providing these benefits. What What have the numbers shown you? I know when
0: Google did something similar, they saw the number of uh, new moms leaving fall,
1: uh, I think, in half. I mean, ha- have you seen the numbers bear out yet? We've seen a significant um, increase in retention of women coming back, and also we we for the consulting industry, we also made another big change, which was to have. Um, uh, those returning from parental leave work locally for a year so don't and have not to fly around. out every Monday morning and come back. And every that Friday. has been also just a huge, um, you know, benefit in terms of retention.
0: Is this policy, Julie, where you uh, would like it to be ultimately? Or do you foresee a need or desire to have it uh, totally equal for new moms and new dads.
1: We're definitely looking at making it totally equal for new moms and new dads as part of it. But one of the things that we're trying to look at is also it's a it's it's sort of the package of what do people value mm-hmm. in terms of benefits because there's a, there is a cost and the way we think about it is you know, where can we as a company use our scale and investment for what matters to our employees? Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly balancing. So for example, you know, two years ago we did a pilot Because we said, you know, one of the things that people have is when you have an illness. And not all of our people live in, um, you know, the places where they can go to the best hospitals, like in New York. And so we piloted a program of getting second opinions electronically from the best doctors. And that was about we can use our scale to do that cost effectively Mm -hmm. for a moment that really matters for our employees. And it was really um really incredibly well received i talked to some of the people who used it and were so grateful and so we then rolled that out and so you know one of the things we're thinking about is should we do exactly you know the same you know leave for um both parents Mm -hmm. and that and we'll sort of decide that but doing it by listening to our people Mm -hmm. as to what do they you know most value you know as we sort of think about what we can spend
0: so it may it may happen. I mean, it's amazing for me. to I think my mother told me my father was a lawyer, a litigator, and I could not have been a better father, more engaged. I think he was at work the next day after. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, those were the times. Yes. Right. And so to imagine that, that there has been this acceleration and change, especially in the last few years, that these policies have changed where, at, you know, at some firms there is this equity or, you know, dads are certainly getting much more off than they than they did before. Is there a moral responsibility for leaders today to do these things for their employees, and I'm not just talking about parental leave. Sheryl Sandberg, after losing her husband, has been very outspoken about leave for uh, loss, leave for helping uh, a loved one who may be very ill. You know, this is not Milton Friedman, the bottom line, the shareholder is all
1: you're responsible to anymore. And, you know, and not just because of recent events, but, you know. I we I work at a company. We really believe that we have a corporate responsibility. You know, we're a people business and so what we do, we have 50,000 people in the US, 400,000 globally. As a people business, we believe that it's our responsibility to lead on these issues around diversity, around how you train and develop people. I mean, we announced earlier this year that we're going to invest in the U.S. alone, $1.4 billion by 2020, in training our people. And if you think about what's happening in the world today, digital revolution, yeah. the people being left behind, we trained 25,000 people in the U.S., on new IT this year, right? Those are people who would be left behind if we weren't investing in reskilling and we see that as critical for our business, right? Absolutely because we, you know, we announced this year we're now at 50% revenue from digital cloud and security. So, critical it. for our business, but also a responsibility, right? That we have to invest in our people and make sure they have the skills they need. So, for you, uh, and for Accenture, that is um,
0: that is a defining move. It's a big investment in dollars, but it's also an investment in the future. We've heard a lot from politicians, from the president, from this administration about America First, about bringing back these jobs, manufacturing jobs. You know, my producer and I have spent a lot of time along the Rust Belt in Kentucky, feeling, seeing the pain of people that have lost these jobs. You're talking about the new jobs, coding jobs, digital jobs. You've been to the White House. Uh, you, you've had these conversations. If you were back there, what would you say to the administration to the president on this front?
1: Well, I think you know, and, and we're a global company, and so we are. We see these issues in every country in that, which we operate, mm-hmm. right? And so, what I would say to the president, and what we're saying in other countries, is that it is really important to be encouraging companies to reskill. And to be thinking now about how technology, you know, what I call the three A's, automation, analytics and artificial intelligence yeah. are going to do to change for your workforce. And it's your responsibility as a corporate leader and a member, you know, a leader in your country, whether mm-hmm. you're the U.S. or the U.K. or India, to think now about that and make the changes now. You may have had this conversation
0: with, with, uh, with the president, so enlighten us if you have, but if not given that you're such an advocate and an example for women leadership what is the number one thing you'd like to see from this white house to push that forward opportunity for women and girls well
1: i think um you know one of the things is is the importance of connecting the opportunities for women and girls to competitiveness right because it is absolutely the right thing to do it is the right thing from an economic perspective but as a member of the business roundtable, mm-hmm. you know we, when we look at what are the what are the things we need to create the jobs and be the company, it is it is definitely around the need for skills. And so, if you take um, women and girls in computer science, the percentage of college graduates is dropping. It's eighteen percent. It's worse than it was in the eighties. Yeah, it's terrible, right? And so, having women and girls focus on. Um, STEM careers and investing in that is really important for them. So These are the great a jobs. I mean, that's
0: what big companies can do and help with, but what can what can Washington do?
1: Well, I think Washington and the state governments, because education is both, can sure. do a couple of key things. We did some research um, last year with Girls Who Code, and I, I know you know Reshma. You wrote, I think you wrote an
0: opinion piece with, with Reshma Sujani, who started Girls Who Code. Right, who is amazing. Who was on and, this podcast. Yes, so she's I know incredible. you know her.
1: She's incredible. Yeah. And one of the things is um that we our research showed is that it's not it's important to not only put computer science in you know K through 12 mm-hmm. but to design the courses so that they are appealing to Girls and to have teachers who are women. And you know, our research showed, for example, that um, you're 26% more likely if you're a girl to study computer science if you have a woman teacher. Huh. And those are choices that people have to make because a lot of the, the teachers that are being that are going to teach computer science are being reskilled, right? They're taking somebody else and diskilling them. Mm-hmm. And having a strategy that says, let's make sure that we're reaching out and, and having lots of women be re skilled to be able to teach Mm -hmm. computer science as a strategy because otherwise you could invest a lot of money in computer science education and not really move the needle because if you're not tapping into girls and, you know, women in college, you're not going to get the number of graduates.
0: As we wrap up, I'd like to end with a few questions about uh, being a working parent. And I purposefully do not say working mother because I have a husband who does equally as much as I do. And it's important that the dads get they do credit as well. You have talked about being open and honest with your employees and your colleagues about when being a parent takes you away from something important for work. I mean, being a parent and your child always comes first, but you had this example that that, that, that made me chuckle, and I was proud to hear it, of having this meeting at your kids' school at the same time as you had this huge work meeting and conference call planned, and you just said it like it
1: was, why you couldn't be there. Yes, and I I think that transparency is important, It also it gives permission for men and women, and I completely agree. I have an incredible husband. We share things equally. We're always saying, okay, who can cover this, who can cover that? Who, by the way, also has a big job. Yes, who has a big job, (laughs) and uh, you know, and and is just an incredible support for me, but so it really is about men and women, and so in this case, you know, and and I don't know what your experience is at school, but I find for most parents, you know, school calendars do not, they do not think about the Parents and their work schedule.
0: Parents' work. (laughs) Let me just say that.
1: And so, you know, (laughs) I had a webcast for all of our managing directors planned. It couldn't be changed. It was on a Friday afternoon. And that week, I get the note that says, oh, by the way, your children are going to be presenting this project they've been working on for six weeks in the middle of the day on Friday. And, you know, and I thought to myself, six weeks of work you couldn't have figured out when they might be presenting you know in (laughs) advance but uh and so um you know and i it was funny so i got on this this call webcast and i said i'm doing this from home because i need to be at my daughter's school and i told the story and i said so i'm going to be leaving halfway through and i had men and women who were emailing me afterwards saying thank you so much for being honest because a ceo i could have said oh, there's a client, oh, totally. you know, or something. And I didn't. I actually told them. And uh, in it's behavior that, you know, we're trying to have everyone model for their teams as well. And it was great to get the reaction from, you know, everyone to say thank you for being honest.
0: Working Mother Magazine named you Mother of the Year in 2015. First of all, bravo. Uh, on that note, for me, balance doesn't exist. I don't like the phrase work-life balance. I think it is evil and made up. And I, I, but I juggle and I integrate and I'm better at work some days and I'm better at being a parent some days. Can you shed some light as someone
1: who has children a little bit older than mine? So I completely agree. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Balance, I don't know it exists. I will just tell you that my coping mechanism is that I laugh a lot. because you just can't take it all too seriously you know I'll never forget coming I was working from home my kids were smaller my nanny was sick And I come out from a conference call, and I I confess I put my children in front of cartoons because I had no one. And I come out, and the dog is on the table eating their lunch. My daughter's like having like five cookies because she'd gotten into the cupboard, and the house is a disaster. And I just started cracking up. Like you just have to laugh, right? And uh, and I think it's important to keep your sense of humor and recognize, as you do, right, that. There are some days that you're going to do really well for your family and some days that you're not. Mm-hmm. But then also making sure that the things that really do matter, like getting to my daughter's, you know, presentation, mm-hmm. where if I had missed that, it may seem small, like, wait, it's a presentation. But for her, mm-hmm. I knew it was everything. And I couldn't miss that. I can miss the umpteenth, you know, monthly parental concert, you know, on a Friday, but not this, and then drawing that line. And not making yourself crazy if
0: you can't be at everything. That's right. You have to forgive yourself, which I think is sometimes hard for us. You battled breast cancer at a young age. How did that change your life? How did that change your outlook? How did that
1: change the way you wake up in the morning? Well, you know, when you go through cancer, it's it, certainly a time for reflection. And, um, you know, one of the things that at the time I reflected on was that I felt like I'd really made good choices. You know, that I, I really said to myself, you know, I don't have regrets. Mm. And, uh, and that was a good feeling. And it's something, though, that I now think about. You know, I, you know, I've stepped up to a bigger role. I travel even more. I have to make choices. And I often go back in my head and say, all right, if I had breast cancer today and I was being asked and I was being self-reflective, would I still have no regrets? Mm-hmm. And I try to use that as my standard because, I mean, thank goodness, I'm you know, completely over it. I've moved on in many ways, it seems like a long time ago. Um, but I don't wanna lose the focus of, wait a minute, your whole life stops. And I want to make sure that whatever's coming and we'll all face different things that I can still say, I have no regrets, you know, you and, use it as, a, um, as a check yes. on yourself. Yeah. And I, and I literally think back to that time and say, okay, would I say it now? And sometimes by the way, the answer is no. Yeah, sure. You know, it's like, and I'm like, okay, then I better adjust something, right? It's not like I've like, lived a perfect life since then and uh, and I, I have really used it to, to to change what I'm focusing on.
0: And you've said that moving forward what you are focused on because you've had all the professional success right is making an impact. So of course that makes me think about public
1: service about Washington any chance? You know, living in Washington, I have incredible respect for those who pick public service, and maybe someday in my second career. not enough—but uh, but, but for the next ten years, certainly, uh, I think I'm I have an opportunity to make a lot of impact uh, at Accenture and in the community. So, so when and if now.
0: you announce your run. Come here and do it with us. Absolutely. Julie Sweet, thank you very much. Thank I you very much. time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. A new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash Country. Max subscription required.